Hey folks, and welcome back to another Blue Light podcast. I'm Brendan from Blue Light, and this is the channel to find out all you need to know about police recruitment. And increasingly, I'm also going to talk about what happens after you've got the badge, what happens after you've got the warrant card in your pocket. What about the rest of your career? But anyway, in this podcast, I've got something very special for you. It's a recording of a webinar that I ran with Chief Superintendent Roy Smith from the Metropolitan Police. Uh, for those of you who are outside of the United Kingdom, that's London, one of the biggest cities in Europe, one of the most vibrant thriving cities but it comes with a huge number of challenges and Roy Smith is one of the leaders in the city in the Metropolitan Police who's helping to make the positive changes that are needed to ensure that the people of London are even safer than they are now. So pin your ears back folks in this recording of a webinar which is about 55 minutes long you're going to hear about community engagement, you're going to hear about the approach to tackling violent crime, you're going to hear about um, why stop and search is such an important tactic, uh, police recruitment, of course, and also something about pride. You know, just wait until the end of this webinar. Absolutely awesome. So I hope you enjoy it. And there's a little bit at the very end where I talk to you about what's coming next. I shall speak to you at the next podcast. I look forward to it. Bye bye for now. Okay, good evening, folks, and welcome to another Blue Light webinar. I am so delighted this evening to be able to welcome Chief Superintendent Roy Smith from the Metropolitan Police. Uh, Roy's going to tell you a little bit more about his role and what he gets up to and his background. But just to say that, you know, Roy's a bit of a Twitter celebrity, uh, over 20,000 followers. Oh, my goodness. Um, over 20,000 followers. Um, so a little bit, a few instructions about the actual webinar itself. And I can see there's so many of you joining already. Awesome to have you on board this evening. There is a chat function, and we would so welcome you asking questions. So fire away with any questions. There's no questions that uh, are off limits, so anything you want. I'm not going to say that we're going to be able to answer them all because there's going to be almost 500 people on this webinar. There's over 500 of you have registered, which is just amazing. So I can already see that Jay Hutt's saying hello. She's just testing out the uh, testing everything out. And Yousef as well. Hello, Brendan and Roy. So good evening to all of you. So let's just get straight into things if I can. Oh, by the way, and if anyone's thinking about, you know, like doing social media at the same time, no, just no. Focus on this. There's going to be some incredible words of wisdom, I hope. So, Roy, um, I, I saw the other day on Twitter that you're busy throwing people off the off the tube who aren't wearing masks and are stinking of cannabis. I thought you were like a chief superintendent. Aren't you meant to be like stuck behind a desk like you are now? What, what's going on there? So, so Brendan, firstly, uh, good evening. Thanks very much for having me and to, to everybody that's, that's joined us. Um, uh, good luck trying to keep me behind a desk. And actually, you know, one thing I would say to probably quite pertinent for this seminar anyone who joins policing, first and foremost, we are police officers. You get one of these, you get a warrant card. Um, and you get a range of, uh, you get the privilege uh, of having powers and ability and an ability to do something when others can't. Uh, and one of the things that's incredibly important to me, part of my leadership ethos, is I don't think it's right for leaders in the police service to ask our people to do something to ourselves. And actually, you know, we, we are all police officers. So whatever rank you attain, we will hold the office of constable. It's one of the fantastic things about British policing. Uh, and I very much should enjoy, uh, when I can, not as frequently as I used to or, or as perhaps I would like to, but I very much enjoy going out, um, you know, still getting stuck in. And we're all cops at the end of the day. 
and particularly, you know, global pandemic, serious risk to public health. It's basic stuff, isn't it? You know, wear a mask on public transport unless you're exempt. Um, it's a fairly reasonable request, in my view. Although it did it did attract some Twitter controversy, I see. <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with a little bit of Twitter controversy. <clears throat> so I'm sure everyone will be interested in, um, actually, I was going to say your role now, but uh, perhaps a little bit more about your role now later. But you're, what, what you've just been doing recently, because I believe you're one of the sort of borough, uh, borough chief superintendents or borough commander. I'm not sure if I've got the right terminology right there. Yeah, so, so up until sort of a few months ago, I was the BCU, we called BCU, so BCU commander for North West London. Um, so we, we divide London, we used to divide London, or London is still divided into 32 boroughs, but we've now got 12 BCUs, so policing speak for, for, for those who are not in the job, basic command units. Nothing basic about them, I have to say. Certainly in the Met, each one of those 12 BCUs uh, is the size of, if not bigger than many regional forces. So big chunks of, of London. Um, and as BCU commander, responsibility for, for everything from response policing, public protection, neighbourhoods, you know, the, the whole, the whole piece. Um, fantastic privilege to, to have worked, um, on the Northwest BCU and a tremendous experience. So for those of us who aren't from the London area, Northwest BCU includes which boroughs? So Brent, Barnet and Harrow. Brent, Barnett and Harrow, right. So I'll just get my geography right. And, and what were the sort of big challenges that you and your team, and I'm going to expand that beyond just the policing team, but partner agencies and communities, what were the sort of big challenges that you faced there? Uh, so I think, um, you know, f- first of all, policing is broadly the same wherever you are in the country. And, you know, people have different views on this and people, particularly with the Met, you know, it's London, is it different? Uh, we have different challenges because of uh, the complexity of operating at such such massive scale. But policing fundamentally, in my view, is the same wherever you do it. Different challenges, different environments, different communities. Um, I think, you know, I, I entered uh, the BCU as BCU commander just in the first wave of COVID. So the biggest challenge for me personally, and I think some of the colleagues that I worked with, uh, was that everything was done in a sort of a COVID environment. So I, I did not have, for the entire time I was BCU commander, a command team meeting with everybody present. Um, and that's, that's different. But I also think what, what a fantastic way of demonstrating that we uh, have been able to adapt in a way that many organisations have, but policing, I think, has done it brilliantly. We've still got the front line of operational delivery, but we're doing things differently. You know, we're, we're using Zoom, we're using Teams, uh, we're reducing travel time. And one of the unintended benefits of that, in my view, is that we've suddenly become a whole lot more accessible to people that we weren't quite as visible and as accessible to before. And a really good example of that is, you know, I don't know about you, but I I get home at the end of the day, a busy day at work, I'm probably exhausted. Um, uh, The first thing I want to do is probably pour myself a large drink, not necessarily traipse down to my local police station to take part in, you know, a safer neighbourhood panel or a ward meeting. They're important, um, but actually if I've got to travel to a police station and then wait and queue and get in and, and get wet, um, it it might be a bit of an inconvenience. Actually, if I can log on via Zoom or Teams in my front room, I think we're seeing significantly higher levels of citizen participation in policing, and that's fantastic. And that's something that we absolutely must not lose when we, you know, and I, I really hope that the days are, are, are not that far now, but when we start returning to some form of normality. Brilliant. And 
So on that, actually, there's something I wanted to ask you about that sort of community engagement and citizen participation. Um, one of the things I've noticed that you do, which um, I see more of now, and I think it's quite refreshing, is when people have got some criticism of the police and they've got something to say, as opposed to, yes, but you don't understand, we're all working really hard and, and can't you see our crime figures are dropping? Um, you seem to have involved people a little bit more in a conversation. And I'm thinking about, I can't remember her name off the top of my head. Is it, uh, there's a woman from Dwayne Namics who's... Uh, Lorraine, Pastor Lorraine. Yes, Lorraine, Lorraine. So tell me a little bit about that approach to community engagement, because it seems a little bit out of sync with what I've been used to over the years. So, you know, first of all, you know, Pastor Lorraine uh, from Dwayne Amick, she tragically lost her son um, uh, who was murdered, has been a tremendous community advocate, um, but is still critical, um, you know, critical in a really constructive way. And, you know, I've probably got a couple of reflections. I live in London. I'm a resident of London. Uh, I care about our communities. And the police, we are nothing if we don't have communities. There's no point in having a police service if we if we don't have uh, communities to police. We need people to tell us when we're getting it right and when we're getting it wrong. And I think, you know, when it's appropriate, I will robustly and vigorously defend police officers. Um, uh, and you may have seen, you know, a number of times I've stepped in on social media mm-hmm. and will continue to do so because, uh, you know, the men and women out there that are working on the front line, you know, they deserve our absolute support when they're operating in those difficult circumstances. But we must be accountable. We're not beyond um, making mistakes. And I actually think that very rarely, even with our most vocal critics, you know, if you say, do you know what, actually, yeah, we've probably got something wrong or we could have done that better or with the benefit of hindsight, there are things that we could have done differently. It's a much more constructive conversation to have. Um, And one of the things I love about Pastor Lorraine and many others, it has to be said, by all means, you know, give us that healthy, constructive challenge you know, be critical when it's appropriate. But we really need your support too, because I I don't know any police officer that, that starts their day thinking, how can I not do a great job today? How can I not protect communities, save lives, do all those fantastic things that we do? Um, there will always be, as in any organisation, a tiny proportion of the organisation that are doing things for the wrong reasons, and we would want to deal with those. There'll be some, myself included, that throughout our career we'll make mistakes. We'll, you know, we'll have a bad day in the office. We'll make a mistake. We'll say something that we regret, you know, and, and, and maybe think actually we could have been a bit calmer. Um, communities accept that, but I think we've got to be honest about it. And the constant mantra of, you know, crime's going down and figures are good and, you know, look at all this activity. Well, candidly, it means nothing if that's not your perception because the perception that our communities have of policing is their reality. And who am I to tell them what their reality is? Uh, and there's nothing more frustrating, in my view, than senior officers or officers of any level uh, forcing a narrative uh, to a public um, as if they don't understand. I think the public do understand and they want us to be open and honest, um, even when some of that might not necessarily be good news. That's interesting. That. And it's, I think there's something there that links in with uh, what Sir Robert Peel said, who, of course, was the founder of the Metropolitan Police in 1829. Uh, there's still a, a bust of them, I believe, outside New Scotland Yard. Um, uh, I've often visited every time I go to New Scotland Yard. I'll spend a moment just looking at the bust there. But he said that the police are the public and the public are the police. The police just being members of the public who are paid full time to carry out a role which is incumbent on all citizens. 
in the interest of community welfare and existence. And it's that last part that I've always found interesting and kind of links in with what you've just been saying there about community welfare and existence. And I suppose there's a debate there now about what is the role for the police? Are they crime fighters, mental health workers, social workers? Or is there something there about the enablers of community and increasing and improving that community welfare and existence, which, of course, links in with those sort of difficult conversations with um, uh, Pastor uh, Lorraine. So how, how do you see things going? Because I know Dave Thompson from West Midlands Police, he's sort of debated this recently. Post-COVID, where are we going to go in terms of the role of the police, in your view? Um, so, I, you know, I think there's probably a couple of observations. You know, firstly, um, that, that piece about sort of citizen participation. Uh, and I, you know, I recently, you may have seen, put a video out explaining police use of force. Mm-hmm. And part of that was actually saying to the public, you know, the police are out there doing something which is incumbent on every citizen to do, to, you know, protect the vulnerable, to look after each other, to step in if someone's getting hurt. Now, clearly, I'm not expecting every member of the public to act like a police officer. But if we approach it that everyone's got an obligation, a responsibility to look after each other, then suddenly it's not just about the police doing it, it's about everybody doing it. And, you know, one of the things, I, I actually am really... COVID has brought tremendous uh, pain, uh, suffering. You know, everyone will know somebody who's lost somebody close to them. Uh, and, and, you know, that's been really challenging and really difficult. And, and we're certainly not, um, not out of it yet. But I also think we've seen the very best of humanity. As so often we do in times of crisis. We've seen people helping vulnerable neighbours. We've people step up and volunteer um, you know, I think of um, uh, a special constable, Shane, who used to be at Northwest. Um, you know, I think his day job's a postman, but he's out driving ambulances at the moment. He's a blue light driver. Uh, you know, he's volunteering out driving ambulances. And, you know, there's, there's all sorts of people doing that all over the place, supporting food banks, um, supporting those that are most vulnerable. So when we come out of this crisis, actually, that sense of kind of public spiritedness and looking after each other is really, really crucial. And then I guess, you know, what's the role of policing? So um, there was something on Twitter. I talk about Twitter because you know what it's like. You see stuff, don't you? Randomly. And um, there was a fairly fierce debate on Twitter recently about the uh, the sort of the growing movement in America of defund the police. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, Barack Obama posted something, having having been sort of criticised for um, seemingly supporting the defund the police campaign. And he said something which I won't say um, nearly as uh, eloquently or articulately, but he said, if by defund the police, you actually mean invest properly in mental health services, in social care, in education, in opportunity for those from deprived backgrounds, if what you mean is actually invest appropriately in all of those services and not just focus on investment in enforcement, then absolutely um, he agrees with the mantra, but it's not helpful to use the defund the police mantra. What we're actually saying is fund all of those really important public services equally. So I think there are other parts of the system that should step up more. You know, police officers are not mental health experts. We have been forced to fill a gap left um, because other services have either suffered a lack of investment, you know, demand has increased, and I think that will get worse post-COVID. We know that, I think, you know, the latest figures, I'm, I'm sort of looking at one in four Londoners, we think, um, you know, got some form of uh, mental health. It's, you know, fantastic that we're talking about mental health more now. Uh, but it is a reality that, that that demand is increasing. So do I think the police should be doing everything? No, you know, 
uh, I don't think we should at all. But one of the wonderful things about policing is however difficult it gets, whether it is our job, whether indeed we do it as well as someone else might, we are the one service that never says no. Um, and actually, for anyone thinking about joining the police, um, you know, thinking about, um, uh, you know, recruitment and, and coming into our organisation, when you ring the police, whatever the problem, the police always come. We always do something. And, you know, the emergency service of last resort, but, you know, the, the emergency services, the fire brigade, the ambulance, the Coast Guard, they all do absolutely fantastic and tremendous work. But you can't call an ambulance to a bank robbery. But you can call a police officer to a heart attack and you can't call a fireman to an assault or a fire lady. That's a sort of clumsy comment there. But um, you can't call them to a, 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 you know, an assault. But you can send a police officer to a fire. Uh, and we see police officers respond mm-hmm. to a manner of emergency. So I think there's a absolute debate to be had about how we fund public services equally and appropriately. I think that demand will get different um, post-COVID. Uh, But what I can say, and actually I think policing should be really proud of, is we are not a service that says no. We're can-do, we're focused, and we will always try and do our best for people that need us. Yeah, and I think there's a big difference probably between defund the police in America and defund the police in the UK, because I know certainly talking to a few American commentators, they look across the water at us and think, yeah, is there something there that we could actually borrow in terms of the principles and build on it. Um, gosh, we could take that, that that conversation in all sorts of different directions, especially if we once you start getting into the, the the business of enabling community organisations to be the best versions of themselves that they can, and and taking some of that strain. Um, but I don't think we're going to have time. Um, but we have got a lot to talk about. So if I can, I'm going to go to some questions, if that's all right, because I've just seen a load of questions pouring in. Uh, let's see if we've got any good ones. Uh, they're all good, by the way, but we're not going to be able to use all of them. Um, and Brenda, just whilst you're looking, yeah, Kathy, I'll just respond to your um, your comment there, which was the police can't put the fire out, though. No, you're absolutely right, and and in in in, in exactly the same way, we might be the first response to a person in mental health crisis, uh, but we are never going to be able to solve that problem long term, and that's why you know one of the key things for public service, for law enforcement moving forward, is we've got to operate as a total system. And if any one part of the system is broken, then it, in, you know, it will inev- inevitably cause issues or problems in another part of the system. You cannot fix uh, public service by simply investing in one part of it. Yeah, it's a big system. And that is where I think the big debate is going to be had. Um, so I'm going to ask a question now, uh, Roy, about the beginning of your career. And then after that, I'm going to follow it with a question. Actually, I'll ask you two questions if I can. So from Jordan, who's asking... Uh, thank you uh, to you and all the Blue Light family for your hard work during this pandemic. What would be your advice to police cadets who wish to join the policing family? I'm going to expand that to young people who want to join the policing family. But first of all, before you answer that, I wonder if people might be interested in what Roy Smith was like when he first started his career and what inspired you to join the police? Well, you know, I, I think so. My uncle was a police officer. Um, and so, I, you know, I've always had an interest in policing. Um, and, you know, there's probably a couple of things, you know, that it sounds really cheesy, doesn't it, when you say you want to help people, you want to, you know, you want to do something uh, that's really worthwhile. I think there's certainly, um, that's, that's a really important sort of value, wanting to help people. There's also something about being in a position where you have the privilege to do something when others cannot. 
So actually, you know, we are the people and it's almost biblical when you think about it. You know, we stand up to criminals. We can take action. We can we can protect the most vulnerable in society. We can do all of those things. Um, and certainly, you know, I started my career in in, uh, in neighbourhood policing. And do I, you know, if there's one, probably not a regret, because, I, you know, it's not helpful to look back with regret, but actually I probably didn't spend as much time as I would now like to have spent as a PC, you know, learning my trade, getting to understand, you know, how policing really works. And, of course, the, the further up you go, it's fantastic that you can... Um, you can you can have more influence and help more people and, and drive the shape of the organisation, uh, but it's not quite as much fun. Um, and you know, there's a there's a saying, isn't there? Um, and everyone will have heard it. And it's two words that everyone says about the job. Normally, when they're in the job or they're recently retired. And I, I won't I won't say it on uh, on live social media, but I think people will know what that is. But actually, you know, every person that I meet, particularly you know, young officers, new officers that have joined. They are all having a fantastic experience. It's just different. Um, so, you know, what I would say to people is, you know, enjoy, you know, if you enjoy the, enjoy the opportunity. And so to the question, I think, was it Jordan that asked around police cadets? I mean, first, you know, fantastic that we've got um, young people involved in policing. And we need you. You know, we need you now more than ever because as we're recruiting, you know, the 20,000 uplift, um, you know, again, we don't want to sound cheesy and say we want to be representative of communities. Absolutely, we do. It's not about being cheesy, but that's uh, that representation is about diversity in all of its forms. So, just as we need young people, um, perhaps who've been cadets and who've got uh, already a sense of public service, so too do we want people who perhaps are joining as a second career, or um, you know, have, have um, gone away and had families and now want to embark on a new adventure. We need that breadth of, of people applying to join us. So, linking in with that. Um you know, we've got the the desire and the need, and actually, you know, I'm a strong believer that, that the police need to be absolutely representative of the communities that they're a part of, because otherwise they'll be seen as apart from the communities. Um, but, you know, big thorny issue for the police at the moment, uh, linking in with that, and how do we ensure that people believe that they're going to be treated fairly, they're going to be treated with respect, and we've got the disproportionality in stop and search at the moment, Mike Cunningham, the outgoing chief constable of uh, the College of Policing, just recently retired in an interview, talked about the disproportionality being eye-watering. Um, so how, how are we going to, I mean, what's the vision for the Met and, and how are the Met going to approach that to not just persuade, but to enable people to believe that the police are acting fairly? So there's probably a couple of things. So I'll, I'll deal with the, the easy part of that question first. And so... Now, what would I say to people thinking about joining and not sure, you know, they might have heard things about the Met and other police forces? Um, well, there's two things I would say. Firstly, if you want to change an organisation, if you want to be part of improving it and making it better, you've got to be in it to win it. You've got to, you know, you've got to be part of it to be part of that change. And the other thing I would say, um, particularly to, you know, recently retired officers and others, but, but serving officers too, is whatever the challenge are and there are challenges of course i accept there are challenges for policing as there are in all sorts of of other organizations we've got to be careful that in talking about those challenges we don't make it seem that improvement and change is impossible Mm. because then actually people don't want to join they go you know we we, they see it as as impossible they see that actually the challenges are so significant the organization must be so terrible um, that why would they want to possibly join what I can say, and I can only um, speak 
for the for the Met is do we have our own issues and challenges? Yes, of course we do. We are an organization of you know 50,000 people. We are reflective of, of the wider public. And so there will be people in this organization um, who have views which I and policing doesn't agree with. That doesn't make it right, but we've got to be honest. You know, there's 50,000 people in the organization. The commissioner's made it absolutely clear that being the most trusted police service in the world is one of our priorities. Mm. And I think you talked about disproportionality with stop and search. Um, so I, I think there's probably three things I talk about with the, the you know stop and search piece. Firstly, I have not been to any uh, community meeting and and, and uh, with, with uh, many of the black communities of London, and we know that there's disproportionality, particularly for young black men. I have not been to any community meeting where uh, someone who is black has said, we do not agree with stop and search. You should never do it. I simply have never heard that from, from, from our black communities. What I have heard is actually the way that you do it, the way that you do it with dignity and with respect, the way that you um, treat people and the way that you make them feel is really important. And I agree. Um, and, you know, I also think that, you know, stop and search is not the solution to everything. It's one tool in our toolkit and it can be a really important tool, but it is only one tool. I think, you know, we, we've also got to move the debate beyond race. So, you know, particularly around stop and search, the issue has become fixated on race. And of course, there is disproportionality. However, um, you know, the, the evidence tells us poverty is a far greater indicator of your likely involvement with police as a victim or suspect than race. But there's a disproportionate number of predominantly young black Afro-Caribbean men that are represented in, in, um, in that group. We've got to talk about these, these issues openly. Um, it is a very sad fact that in London, uh, you know, a young black man or boy is nine times more likely to be a victim uh, of homicide. Nine times. That's not right. That's, of course, that's disproportionate. Um, it's not fair. It's not right. And we shouldn't accept it. Um, but that isn't something which policing is driving. You know, actually, some of the disproportionality you see in stop and search, and stop and search is a imperfect tool to fix a, you know, a really wicked problem. But some of the disproportionality that you see in our use of stop and search is actually because police officers are trying to protect those very same communities. And just as you're, um, you know, you're, you're nine times more likely to be a victim, you know, three out of five homicide suspects uh, are black. So these are facts that we have to, you know, we have to talk about, we have to confront. Um, and what I'm really, really enthusiastic about is we are now having those difficult conversations. Um, I think, you know, certainly in my career, we've been scared of using the word black. You know, we've been scared of describing someone as a black person. Um, we should not shy away from, from these issues. We're now having the debate. We're talking about it openly. Um, and I think the Met recognising that we've got to improve trust and confidence with London's many black communities, as we do with all of our communities, recognising that there are some things that we're not doing as well as we could, and being prepared to stop, to pause, to reassess, to really listen is really important. And so, if, you know, if there's anything that's come out of the, um, you know, the, the, the understandable focus on uh, black relationships with the police, uh, particularly over you know some of the horrific incidents in in America, which is a very different place to the UK. But if anything has come out of that, is we're now talking about it, 
And we're talking about it in a serious way because we want to change and improve. But I do think that that responsibility goes both ways. We can't solve it in isolation. Many of the issues of disproportionality are seen right the way through society. You know, I was reading, uh, you know, today some of some of the figures around trust amongst black communities in the vaccine, around rates of COVID infection. Uh, you know, we see that disproportionality in almost every area of society, which of course does not make it right. Um, what is completely understandable, and I think policing is rising to the challenge, is we are the most visible arm of the state. We are the people that are most likely to be involved in an encounter with somebody where there is a power imbalance. There is, you know, you've got a police officer with a load of power and you have a citizen who is without the same power. And that for me means however difficult the journey is for policing, you know, the onus is on us. You know, we need the help. We've got, you know, communities have got to play their part. And that includes, you know, black communities of London. Uh, but actually the onus is on policing to do more because we're the people with the power. Uh, and that means we have also the responsibility and accountability for using that fairly and ethically. Thank you. And I suppose that leads to, I did say before, um, I'm not going to mention until later your current role, uh, but I'm guessing that's a perfect segue really into your current role at this moment in time as part of the Deputy Commissioner's Delivery Group. Uh, I wonder if you'd like to share a little bit more about that and how that would take this situation that we're in now and what you've just been talking about now into the future as as part of the Met's vision, uh, London's vision for the future. So, yeah, really excited to be kind of working now for the the Deputy Commissioner and and our focus on trust and confidence. And, and, uh, you know, the the first thing I sort of uh, probably should mention, and it often comes up in these conversations, is, you know, are we exclusively um, working just to make things better for black applicants for the Met or for black Londoners? No, we are deliberately focused, but not exclusively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's an important point to make because we should be uh, accessible. We should be a, a brilliant organisation for everybody. Um, but our focus is deliberately in that area, not exclusively. And, and somebody described uh, this to me in, in a way which is uh, probably easier for me to certainly understand in my mind. And they said, you know, if you've got a house that's on fire, if it's on fire, keep talking about the fire brigade today, don't I? I've always got fires on the mind. But... If you've got a house that's on fire, then you send all your fire engines to the house that's on fire and you focus uh, on the house that's on fire there and then. That doesn't mean that you ignore the house that hasn't got a smoke alarm or the house that's smouldering. Um, and that's certainly from other other groups that are also disadvantaged or underrepresented in policing. That does not mean that none of those groups are important. All of the work we do should be inclusive for everybody. Um but we're simply, you know, we've got a deliberate and particular focus right now on an issue that's really relevant. I think um, another point that I would make is that all of the work that the Met's doing to be a more inclusive employer, to encourage people in, should benefit everybody. Uh, you know, it should absolutely benefit everybody. And I'm also, you know, one of my big responsibilities is to make sure that we don't alienate chunks of either our communities or our current workforce in in our in in a, in, a, in 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 the process of sort of becoming more inclusive. Uh, so it shouldn't be at the cost of, you know, inclusivity for the full organisation. And I have to say, you know, and, and you know, my, my very, you know, some own, some own sort of um, stereotypes or prejudice here, but some of the people that have been most open-minded, you know, most willing to kind of accept difference of opinions, of beliefs, whatever it might be, have been people in policing who you might not traditionally think would 
be as open-minded as they as they are so um you know i've seen all sorts of people in the organization you might look at and say you're not necessarily the most representative person of london as it is now but oh my goodness i've been so pleasantly surprised at their really you know willingness to think differently and openly um and i i think policing gets a you know an, an unfairly bad reputation because we do have our problems we do have our challenges but i think we are significantly better than so many others and we are recognizing those issues and challenges and being prepared, prepared to confront them and challenging them challenging them head on and, and not everybody is in that place interesting um and that links in actually with some of the questions that people are asking so it's very topical very very topical i'm just going to uh let's just take one here from alina actually uh, what are the initial steps being taken to build trust among the black community and how are improvements being made? Um, I, I'm going to pass a comment there that maybe is a good question, Alina, but I'm not sure about initial steps because there's been a lot of work already, but I know some would say not enough. Um, so what what sort of specific things could you say that are happening now that are going to build up that trust? So, I mean, you know, the first thing probably relevant to this seminar is that you know, we've got massive uh, recruitment ambitions. So, you know, we want 40% of our candidates to come from a black, Asian, and minority ethnic background by 2023. Um, you know, the 20,000 uplift in policing uh, nationally, you know, the Met's going to get a big chunk of that. And we absolutely want those recruits to be representative of London. Uh, it's, you know, so what, what bigger opportunity is there in terms of what are we doing right here and right now? Um, we've got the Mayor's Action Plan and we've got the Met's own commitment to um, improving relationships uh, with all of London's communities, but that's, you know, that deliberate but non-exclusive focus on London's black communities. Now, the Deputy Commissioner uh, personally is overseeing much of the work that I'm currently involved in. That's, the, you know, the level of interest uh, in, in this space. We are, um, you know, just some of the things that we, we, we're doing currently. We are recording road traffic stops to look at disproportionality there. Uh, we've recently reviewed the use of handcuffs pre-arrest um, with specific concerns that young black men are being over-handcuffed. Um, and, and all of these these sort of things that we're doing are complex issues. So, if I, you know, handcuffing is a really good example. Uh, you know, we've got to absolutely make sure that we're treating people fairly. But I also, I'm a police officer, um, and I've seen officers really badly and seriously assaulted. I've seen... Uh, I, you know, I've had personal experience, um, you know, six six months ago in, in Wembley High Street, Primark, responded to a call uh, to an incident where I didn't choose to handcuff the individual who was presenting as a victim. And that individual had a incredibly large hunting knife uh, down their trousers. And so the copy of me is thinking, you know, I want to go home at the end of the day. Uh, we've seen some, some, you know, we've seen assaults on police officers rise significantly. And that's not an excuse. But I do think, as with everything, context is important. Mm. So we want to build trust and confidence. Uh, but actually, I think it's important that policing understands the community perspective. But equally, communities understand the policing perspective. Because until you, you know, you've stood in those shoes, you've had one of those situations at work where you think that was close. I, you know, I very nearly got seriously assaulted then. Or, you, you know, you do get assaulted and, you know, the, the, the absolutely horrific murder of Matt earlier this year policing is a dangerous job mm. you know not not every policing encounter is dangerous but many policing encounters come with danger so um you know there is sort of for the reason i mentioned that is these problems are complex and they're not going to be solved by just dealing with one element of it 
you know, we, you know we've, we've got to find that middle ground. And actually, as you're saying that, I was having a little flashback to some moments in my career where I do remember walking out of the uh, um, police training school where I finished my career on the last day thinking, phew, <laughs> I'm in one piece. Because uh, there were some moments where actually I thought, you know, I'm, I'm, I was that far away from meeting my maker. Um, and I think, Brendan, you know, the other, the other observation, I, you know, I would make is, and I, you know, I've said this a number of times here, but the, the, the onus is not just on the police. We, we, we've got to play a role because of that power imbalance. Mm. But I do think, you know, we've got to be prepared to have some of those challenging conversations as well with the wider public. So I, I cannot imagine why anyone would think it's acceptable to stand around and film whilst a police officer is getting seriously assaulted. I don't understand why that's acceptable on a human level. Forget the fact that they're a police officer. Um, you know, we do have uh, proper processes of accountability and there are absolutely ways that you can make complaints, you can give feedback and you should do so. We should be accountable. And when we get it wrong, which we sometimes do, sometimes really badly, we should you know, we should investigate it and, you know, we should apologise. We should be human. Uh, but I do think we've got to call out some of the unacceptable behaviour that we've seen emerging. You know, spitting at police officers, uh, you know, when you've got COVID um, and using that to assault them. You know, headbutting officers, stabbing officers, driving at them with cars. The police are not there to be assaulted. Uh, and, and just as we have to, you know, think differently and improve. I, I do think, you know, policing has got to get better and we are slowly doing that. Are calling out unacceptable behaviour from others because you can't say that you want the police to be, you know, all of these things to all people. And then when officers are out performing their roles to the best of their ability, making it so difficult for them to do their job. Uh, you know, and I've seen it, you know, you get surrounded by people who are crowding in your face who know none of the context. You know, they know none of the context as to why we are there. Um, and I can't say that, you know, no police officer ever does this because, you know, that would be unrealistic. But I've got to tell you, Every cop that I see going out wants to do a good job. Do they get things wrong occasionally sometimes? But they go out wanting to do a good job, trying to do the very best. And when you're on your eighth or ninth call, you dealt with victim and trauma, and you've seen things that many people don't see. We go to some very dark places. We take on other people's trauma. And sometimes, you know, my message to the wider public is, give us a break. That's not to say that we shouldn't be held accountable, but, you know, if you think you could do a better job in many of these scenarios, we've got officers out there every day putting their lives on the line to try and help people. Uh, and so I do think, you know, we need some of that understanding and support from our public too. Yeah, awesome. And, uh, do you know, on top of that, I'm going to add my view as well. I watch officers being surrounded by these people with phones, uh, reporters, and the incredible restraint I see right across the country is, you know, I've got nothing but love and admiration for them because I'm quite sure that that restraint wouldn't exist in other parts of the world. You know, the, the, the way they deal with the barrage of people trying to get a, a camera in their face whilst they're trying to do a difficult job, you know, my, my heart goes out to them. It really does. Um, and I think there's, you know, I'll add to that, I think there's some space here for people in communities to have a, a word with themselves, really, about the acceptability of this and whether this should be akin to, you know, at some point you should be ashamed of this. Um, and, and where we go in the future, I don't know. But I would hope that we would turn that corner and maybe in, in, in years to come it's seen as a, 
something that you just don't do, that you should be ashamed of yourself, that you film the police trying to do their difficult job. Um, but who knows? Who knows? Anyway, let's lighten things up a little bit. Um, here's a, <laughs> there's always a question like this. I like these ones. Uh, thanks for all your work, Roy. Um, what would you be, be your best advice to a new officer on their first month on the job? Apart from the obvious, two ears, one mouth, cakes, and get your hands dirty. <laughs> um, so what would my, my advice be to new officers? Well, I, I, probably a, kind of a few things. So the first is, you know, know what your values are, know what your ethics are. Um, and yes, you know, there's a bit of fitting in and, and, you know, we're a disciplined service, you know, I, I'm not suddenly saying you should go in and, and, uh, and, and act like you know everything and you can run the world. That wouldn't be a good, a good approach. But be true to the values that you hold. Um, remember the experiences that you've had. And, you know, I, I've got a really simple piece of advice I give to or go to new recruits at the Northwest, and it's the mum test. So what would your mum think of the way that you are dealing with this particular policing encounter? And if she would be proud, then you're probably doing it right. And if you wouldn't do it in front of your mum, then you're probably getting it wrong. Um, the second is having some empathy and some understanding for the position that others find themselves in. So increasingly, as I've gone through my policing career, I find the line, the, the, the sort of the, the barrier between good and bad becomes increasingly blurred. You know, good people can do bad things and bad people can do really good things. Uh, and it's not binary. It's, you know, it's not as simple as that. And so, you know, if, if you come from a, you know, if, if you're, if you're, you know, you, you, you've got a strong family, you're, you've got income, you're fit and healthy, you're supported, you've had a good education. Fantastic. It's brilliant that you've got all of those things. But you know what, if you, if you grew up in a, um, in a particular estate, let's say, let's say that you're, you're from a single parent family that want, you know, your parent or, or role models in your life were involved in crime or criminality, that you didn't feel protected by the police because we weren't as visible as we should have been. You chose to hang around with some friends and that friend group got bigger and you say they were friends and the police say they were a gang and actually your friends fall out with another group of friends. And so you start defending your turf because, you know, that's that human instinct of, of kind of group and socialization. And that escalates and suddenly you're carrying a knife. And the next thing is you're defending your piece of turf with a knife. I am not saying that any of those things are acceptable or lawful, but I am saying, do you know what? I, I don't know that I could say in all honesty that I wouldn't have done some of those things if I'd grown up in that environment, in that place at that time. So every person we deal with may be as much of a victim as they are criminal. Uh, they may be a product of an, of an environment and everybody is capable of change. I firmly believe that, you know, everybody is capable of change. So just when you're, when you're dealing with somebody, when you arrest somebody, you deprive them of their liberty, whatever it is that you might do, just think about, you know, how would you have been in the same situation? And you could be the only person that offers that individual hope. Mm. That is a huge responsibility. You are, you may be that one person at that moment in time that gives that individual hope of things getting better. Um, and the very best police officers that I've seen are the ones that can have a almighty roll around on the street. You know, they might have to use force, taser or baton or whatever it might be. And then actually they can bring it down and have a conversation, a mutually respectful conversation with whoever it is that they're dealing with. And that, you know, that, that would be the biggest single thought that I would want to leave you with uh, if you were going into your sort of first week of duty. 
Yeah, I like that. I'm going to build on that if I can a little bit, because I like that integrity test. I often add to that your best friend, the chief constable and the queen, who you swear your oath to. Just imagine them around you. Um, but but also there's that, one of the things I talk about, we, we talk about a lot on some of the webinars with uh, those people who are hoping to join the police, is that responsibility. You know, that when you take away someone's liberty, you are also, you've got this incredible honour and privilege to be able to do something on that day, at that time, in that moment, to improve that person's life. And we talk about the, we, the debate between, is this person a victim or are they a criminal or are they, can they be both? And I think they can be. And so I, I, I like to get them all to try and promise that they're going to demonstrate an act of kindness to every person they arrest and try and think about what it might be like to be in their shoes and have as an aim and this came from 1987 when I was in uh, 1986, actually. Because remember, I, my inspector, Inspector Good, coming up to me wanting to know why someone had thanked me as they were leaving custody with a charge sheet. And I tried to explain that I think it's because of the way I treated them. And I can still remember him, this big, bold chap who seemed like he was eight foot tall, but actually is about the same height as me, just turning around and saying, Yes, sir, uh, carry on then. And he seemed quite pleased about that. Back in 1987, 86, that was, that was quite good. But there's something there, I think, and that, that'd be my advice to those people who are joining the police. Once you're in there, don't forget that this is an incredible privilege and don't forget that you're in a position to offer that, that act of kindness and that one act of kindness to each person who's arrested may make a huge difference, may make a huge difference. But anyway, I'm going to get off my soapbox now. Um, <laughs> let's see if we can get some other questions. Uh, Joanne Monk here, I hope I pronounced that right, is asking a good question here about, uh, good evening, Roy and Brendan, as a hate crime ambassador and independent advisor to Sussex Police and the South East Crown Prosecution Service, I'd be interested to know what support and policies the Met has in place to support transgender colleagues. Also, if possible, do you have dedicated officers that engage with diverse community groups? I'm going to expand that a little bit um, as to, you know, once you're in and through the door, and you may come from a background that's underrepresented, uh, whether it be LGBT, transgender, uh, black, Asian, any form of minority, Eastern European. What, what support networks are there for those officers? And actually, beyond that, what's because we talked about some of the incredible trauma that officers face, what support networks are there for all officers in terms of the, helping with that trauma? Because, you know, I, I know from my own experience, that, you know, I have those four o'clock in the morning dreams where, I still think I'm back at work dealing with something traumatic from 20 years ago. Um, so what's what's there now? There's just two questions there. Support for people from different groups in the community and the wider support for all officers in terms of welfare and well-being. Okay. Um, so if I, I'll deal with the, the second part of that question first, if I may. So, you know, I think we have come a tremendous way forward in terms of the support that we provide to, to officers and staff. Um, so Operation Hampshire, who you, which you may be familiar with, is around the dedicated response to officers that are assaulted or injured, including hate crime at work. Um, much more focus, you know, individual case management. We the gone are the days where you know a police officer should just put up with it. Actually, there's a dedicated response now to uh, to give people support. We've got far better occupational health services, and there's all sorts of you know partner agencies that are that are able to help, and we can signpost. I have to say, I still don't think we're doing enough, particularly around mental health of, uh, of serving police officers. Um, you know, suicide amongst police officers is an issue. You know, we don't talk about it enough, but it is an issue. Um, I 
you know, tragically had to deal with the um, the suicide of a serving police officer when I was a BCU commander at, at, at North West. Um, and, you know, my, re- my reflection from that horrible experience um, and the commitment that I gave to that officer's parents is that something good will come of this. And that good is that we will normalise talking about mental health even more. We will enable people to have those conversations to just check in with their mate and make sure that they're okay. Um, and, you know, I, I said to new recruits when I sort of meet them at, at uh, either Wembley or Collingdale Police Station, if there's one thought I can leave you with, we do a difficult job. If someone's not okay, just check in because you might spot um, you might spot something that's going wrong and that single intervention might save a life. So don't go home and think, oh, I should have checked on, on Brendan because he wasn't all right. Or do you know what? Yeah. Brendan, he, he wasn't right that day. He was really agitated on the street. He was a bit more aggressive than he might usually have been. You know, check in with people. Um, and the analogy I would use is, you know, we, we talk about mental health. And I'm focusing on mental health. That's not because I'm saying that physical health isn't important. But broadly speaking, the response to a physical injury is pretty good. I think we can all accept that. If you break your arm, then you go to hospital, we treat it, and, and you go through a period of rehabilitation. With mental health, um, it's a bit like driving a car down a road. You can get a sort of a stone chip on that windscreen and you can still drive. You can still still see straight and everything operates as normal. So from anyone to the side of you or behind of you, you seem perfectly normal. And even to yourself, you think, well, I can still drive. Um, and then eventually you get you know, more and more stones. And, and one of two things happens in my experience with policing either the cumulative impact of all of those stones chipping your windscreen causes the whole thing to shatter. And it's not one single event. It's just that constant drip, drip, drip of trauma. Or one single traumatic event, a terrorist attack, a particularly horrific scene. is like a big boulder that just comes through and wipes your, your windscreen out. Um, both of those things are, uh, you know, causes of, of, of major trauma. But policing is even more complicated because police officers aren't driving down a motorway we're not driving down a motorway that's well lit and well surfaced we are asking you the people of the police service to go and drive down a dark country lane with stones and rocks and trees and you know crevasses and all sorts that's the job we're putting you in an environment where you are going to be exposed repeatedly to trauma to difficult situations. And so, you know, my goodness, you are more likely to, you know, have a wobble. And that is absolutely okay. And if there's one message I would give to everybody that is thinking about joining the police, it is almost inconceivable that you will not at some point have some form of mental health issue. And talking about it is absolutely okay. You are never alone. There is never nobody that you can talk to. We've got to get better. Um, but if you don't feel right, talk to somebody. But the onus is also on all of us. If you see that, you know, that car's drifting off course, it's, you know, it's heading somewhere it shouldn't. For goodness sake, whatever your length of service, whatever your rank, everybody can step in and do something. Um, and that, I think, is really important. And then to the first point, you know, there's loads of support um, services available, sort of support groups to all sorts of colleagues from underrepresented groups. Uh, we still have challenges, like any organisation with, um, you know, with all sorts of issues that might appear. But one of the fantastic things I have to say when I look at recruit classes now, and this isn't 
necessarily an age thing, but actually diversity in all of its, uh, you know, its forms, whether that's kind of colour, sexuality, belief, religion, it's getting so much more normal to see people who are different to you and, you know, who am I to define normal? But actually you walk into a recruit class now and it's just, you know, there is no normal because everybody's normal, whatever they bring to the table. And, you know, the more people that join uh, policing from different walks of life, the more that actually we see that, you know, evolving in front of us. And it's, I've seen it change at a, you know, at such a fast pace. You know, every time we get a new recruit course through, different people with different skills, different contributions are massively making it far more acceptable to be different in whatever way it is in policing. I like that, that uh, the acceptability of difference, uh, so much so that it's not seem doesn't seem different anymore. Um, I love that. And I, if I think back to the 80s and 90s, my policing experience, um, I've got to say the police service has come a long way, you know, and I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that it's on that journey. You know, there's, there's definitely a trajectory there. There's definitely somewhere it's going. Um, and that journey, you know, in 30 years' time, there'll be two other people like us having a similar conversation about challenges, I guess, and, and the journey. Um, and that's one of the things I talk about a lot with our potential recruits is don't forget that you're going to be part of that journey. You know, the people who are joining today will be the future leaders, will be the future change. Um, and it's not your responsibility anymore. It's not my responsibility. It's theirs. It's theirs. So it's really exciting for them. I've got to say that there's, there's probably never been a more exciting time to join the police. And, you know, the, the, the challenges that you're going to face are enormous, but the enormous pride you're going to have is incredible. Um, and it's okay to have that pride, I think. Um, and on that, I'm just looking at time now thinking that might be a perfect segue to wrap up if we can, Roy, because I know there's loads, uh, there's loads of questions. There's honestly, there's hundreds of you there asking all sorts of questions and we'd be here until late at night if we asked them all. Um, so there may be another opportunity, who knows, or maybe some of them could get posed on Twitter. I think I'm going to get a little log of the questions that have been asked. But if I can wrap up, uh, Roy, with... Um, my heartfelt thanks for you joining us this evening and, and, and sharing your thoughts and opinions and your ideas uh, and something of your values. Uh, and, and I'll end, if I can, with just asking you a question. You know, what is it that you're most proud of in being a police officer? What is it about being a police officer that you're most proud of? So, you know, I think this comes back to your kind of earlier point, doesn't it, of... Um, never underestimate the impact that a moment of kindness can have as a police officer in that moment of time. And, you know, I won't talk about the specifics of the incident, but, you know, there have been tragically a number of occasions where people have died literally in my arms as a police officer, some in really horrific um, scenarios. And the biggest comfort that I've been able to take the thing that I am most proud about as a police officer, and there are many things that I'm, you know, I'm not proud of, and there are many things that I would do differently if I had my time again. But when I've met some of those family members, and they've said, you know, we've lost a loved one, and they were killed at the hands of terrorists or at the hands of criminals, you know, they died on a cold, dark, wet, bleak street as a kind of a lifeless body. I'm actually able to stop and say that's just not true. They died in the arms of police officers who at that moment, that point in time, loved them unconditionally with everything possible that they had 
and did their utmost from one human being to another to save their life. And if you join the police, you may have the opportunity to do that. And I just cannot think of any other privilege as a human being than being there at that point in someone's life and being able to leave that small comfort with the family that they leave behind. Well, you've, you, you got me there. I've started to have flashbacks to similar moments. Um, my goodness. Uh, I think we've just found a new recruitment video for joining the police, the sort of last 30 seconds there, Roy. That was, um, that was awesome. That was awesome. Um, that pride, wow. Whew. All I can say now, Roy, is thank you. That was absolutely amazing having you on board this evening for uh, an hour. We've touched on all sorts of subjects there. It would be maybe another time we can continue with some of those subjects. Let's see what everyone else has to say when they listen to this and watch this. But can I thank you? I know you're incredibly busy at the moment. You've got so much on your plate. You've given up, given up an hour of our time. Um, I don't know if we can do it like a virtual round of applause for Roy. Uh, thank you very much. I shall catch up with you soon. And thank you, everyone, to, for joining us this evening. Um, I'm sorry we couldn't have answered all of your questions, but I think we've done our best there to try and be representative of some of the questions that you've had. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us this evening, and we'll speak to you soon. Bye-bye for now. Thanks, Brendan. Thank you all. So wasn't Roy amazing? Wow. Um, I, I've got to say, lump in my throat right at the very end. Um, what about you? Inspiring, huh? So anyway, thank you very much to Roy Smith for um, spending some time with me and sharing this wisdom that he has with all of you. I know for many of you, you've already said who were on the webinar how inspirational it was and how it's, it's affirmed to you that the police service is the right career for you. So I'm very, very pleased about that. So I've got more of these sort of webinars coming up soon and I'll transfer them onto a podcast for you. Um, in the future, though, I think I'm going to talk a little bit more about what comes next after the badge? Uh, what comes after that warrant card in your pocket? Because you've got that future career ahead of you and I want to make sure that that career is awesome, that you are both successful and that you feel as though it was uh, a career full of fulfillment as well. So I'll catch up with your next podcast. Uh, speak to you very soon. Bye-bye for now. Hey,